Okay, I'll be reading from the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the innumerable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work, working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So one of my sweet memories of my nephews and nieces uh, growing up is of my oldest nephew, uh, Jake. He's now married. I think he's turning 30 here in the upcoming year. But when he was a little guy, uh, a little shaver, our family has always loved ice hockey. We grew up um, in the Midwest and then moved out here to California. And so hockey's always been a part of the family. And he was the first grandkid. He was the first nephew. And so um, we just loved being able to, you know, bring him along for any kind of hockey endeavor that we did, whether that was us playing uh, adult hockey or watching hockey on television. And so from the time that he was just little, what we would do is we'd put a stick in his hand. And so he would always have like a stick. When he started to walk, he would walk with his hockey stick and would almost balance himself like, uh, like a cane. And he would watch us play hockey and then he would watch hockey on television. And one day we were in their living room and it's one of the cutest things. There was a little net that we had made and, and uh, we would play around and shoot into the net uh, with, with him. And one day he's a toddler, he's like maybe 18 months, he's not even two years old, but he's got, his, he's got a diaper on and a t-shirt and he's got his stick and he walks up in front of the net and he just squats down like this and he sticks his stick in front of the net and he's pretending to be a goalie. And it's just the cutest thing. And so we got the ball and we just start firing it at him, no. Um, and so, but he's, he's sitting there and in, in front of the net and we're just having fun with him. We're all laughing, we're like, oh, how cute. And you're like, how did he know to do that? Like, how did he understand to go and sit in front of the net as a goalie? It's because he had, he had watched, he had seen others model what it meant to, to be a goalie. And when we would play with him, you know, he'd shoot the ball and then he'd kick it back. And he just, he just sat there in a squat for, for forever. We tried to go between his legs, but the ball would get stuck under his diaper because it was hanging so, so low. It was just such a cute, cute thing. We, and we enjoyed it. But I thought about that story because we're in this section today in this passage in the book of Ephesians where there's some portions of God's word that are very clearly instructive, where God is very clearly saying, here is what I'm calling you to, and here is and what you are to, to do in light of the things that I'm sharing. And then there's passages like the one that we find here in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is talking to his recipients, and he's sharing with them something that he does. And as we look at what he does on behalf of the believers there in Ephesus, we see him really modeling for us 
something that I believe that God would desire for us as well to engage in. Just as my little nephew learned how to be a goalie by looking at others and then modeling what he saw in them. So too, I think as we look at this story, we're gonna see, or I shouldn't say this story, this, these set of verses, we're gonna see some of the things that Paul does that's worth us modeling as well. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's always Bibles in the seats in front of you. It's a great way for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep that. But we're going to be in verses 15 through 23. And let me just say, I'm going to really motor through this this morning because uh, unlike the last few weeks where it took us quite a bit of time, we're going to get through all of these verses today because I want us to see them in their fullness. So what is it that we learn from Paul? What is it that he models for us that we too might walk in? Because this is God's word inspired by him. Well, it starts in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In the passage right before this, Paul has been extolling to the believers in Ephesus all the spiritual blessings that have come to us through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he transitions here, and now here, instead of talking more about the specific spiritual blessings we receive, Paul tells the believers, he, he shifts gears, and, and he tells the believers that he does something on their behalf. He tells them here in verse 15 and 16 how thankful he is to God for them. He says, when I think about you, as believers in Jesus Christ, my heart is overwhelmed and I give thanks to God for, for you. He can't help but thank God because as we see here in verse 16, he says there's, there's, there's something that he sees in them that, that produces this thanksgiving. And what he sees in them that I would like to kind of summarize is he sees in them a genuine faith. He sees in the believers in Ephesus how the gospel has come to them and has really transformed their lives. And that overwhelms him with thanksgiving because their lives are a powerful testimony of what the gospel can do. And we know that this is what Paul is desiring to give thanks for because look at verse 15. He says, I have heard of two things. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. Church, these two things go hand in hand throughout the scriptures. And they go hand in hand as evidence to us of the genuineness of someone's faith, of the transforming power of the gospel. You see, this, this first thing when he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that someone cannot call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ if they do not profess him as their Savior and Lord. You can't say that you're a Christ follower if you don't know who Jesus Christ is and you don't profess him to be who he is, if you have not believed in him for who he is. In fact, look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. He says, 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus himself said, listen, if you're truly one of my followers, you're going to profess me to others. You're going to believe in, in me. Paul would pick this up when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 10.9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So when Paul says that I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that to him is such an encouraging thing because you can't truly be a follower of Jesus Christ if you have not professed him as your Savior and as your Lord. But notice that one of the things that the Scriptures always ties to this is what comes next in the text. He says, I know your faith is genuine and I know your faith is true, not just because you say Jesus is Savior and Lord, but that I have heard that you have love for one another. That right there, love for one another, is consistently called evidence of a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that this would be true in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have, what, love for one another. Love for one another is evidence of a genuine faith. Paul says, I'm so thankful to God for you because your peoples whose very lives are at a testimony that the gospel has taken root and has changed and transformed you. Why? Because you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, and the evidence that your faith is genuine is manifested in your love for one another. John would write to the church in 1 John chapter 3, and this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. You wanna know if one's faith is genuine and true? Paul says it will be evidenced by love for others. And when he sees that love that they have, and when he hears that they have professed faith in him, he says, I can't help but do something. I can't help but thank God for you. Now here's where I wanna pause for a moment, church, and I wanna say, like, not to get heavy at the beginning of a message, but the reality of these things should hit us. Let's not let this moment pass by, and what I mean by that is, if the scriptures continually tie professing Christ as Lord, evidenced by love for one another, then that means that if there's not love for others in your heart and in your actions, then the scriptures would call you to ask the question, is my profession of Christ true? Is it genuine? I can't say that I love Jesus if I don't love the things that he loves because Jesus Christ loves his church and loves his people. So how can I say that I love Jesus if I don't love the things that he loves? If a life is marked with self-centeredness and self-focus, 
and it's not given over to a love for others, then we should really pause and we should examine our hearts and minds and say, do I really know the Christ who has claimed to give his life out of love for me? Don't let this day pass you by without truly examining and understanding that one of the things that Paul says here is genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it is evidenced by love for other believers. Now, as I told you though, for Paul, he didn't have to worry about this when it came to the people in Ephesus because he literally comes and he shows us one of the things that, well, we're to model. He comes and after acknowledging their faith in Christ and their love for one another, he says that this causes me to give thanks to God for you. And so church, here's what I wanna say. When we see an evidence of faith and love for others in believers, well, look at what Paul does here. He shows us that it is good, church, to thank God for other believers and to let them know it. (laughs) And to let them know it. Paul says, I thank God for you because of what I see in you, but I'm not just telling that to God, I'm letting you know it as, as well. And this is Paul's pattern actually throughout his letters. When Paul recognizes someone's faith, and their love for others, he always lets them know it, and he always gives God thanks for them. In Philippians chapter 1, when he writes to the church in Philippi, he says this very thing. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. When he writes to the church in Colossae, he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When We pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ and of the what? Love that you have for all the saints. He writes to Philemon and he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. This is Paul's pattern. This is what Paul models when he sees the faith as genuine in others, he thanks God for those people and he tells them that he sees it in them. You know, when the terrorist attack happened on the World Trade Centers on 9-11, it was such a horrible and devastating thing that the authorities in New York said, we don't ever want this to happen again. We don't, we don't wanna miss anything. And so they put together a campaign that they promoted and eventually it was adopted by the Department of Homeland Security. And they created a phrase, and I know that you've heard this phrase before, that the phrase that they created, the campaign slogan that they had was, if you see something, what? Say something. And and this became kind of the model of, of the authorities. They said, listen, if you see suspicious terroristic type activity, report it to an authority, let them No. Well, I want to take that motto, that slogan, and I don't want to use it as it pertains to terrorism. I want to use it as it pertains to giving thanks for other believers. I think that it is right and good for us to do the same, which is see something, say something. You see genuine faith. You see acts of love from other believers. I think what Paul is saying and what the scriptures model for us, that it's right and good for us to Thank God for what we see, and then to let the people know what we see in 
them, to thank God for them, for their faith, for their love for the saints. You know, I try and do this in a very small way, kind of each Sunday, because I can't always go to all of you and say it. But you know, at the end of almost every service, you'll hear me say, in all genuineness, I love you, church family. And, and I say that really, not just for me, but for all of the elders and pastors. And I can say that genuinely because as long as I have been here, I've seen this church family, I've seen you as individuals, members of the church, putting your faith and trust on Christ on display. The genuineness of your faith being known as some of you have gone through suffering and through sickness. I've seen the genuineness of your faith on display as you have given credit and praise to God for the things in your life and not taking the glory for yourself. I've seen you serve and love one another. So many of the members of this church body are committed to some form of service within the programs of the church, not to say anything about the way that you serve each other and love one another on a day-to-day -day basis outside of the programmed ministries of the church. Valley Center Community Church, that's what I say to you, brothers and sisters, I love you. It's my way of saying thank you. I thank God for you. We as elders and pastors, we thank God for you. And I'm not just like bumping my gums. I'm not just saying it just to say it like it's true. Our heart's desire when we come to a passage like this was that God would cultivate within us as a church to be a people who when we see something, we say something. I just, I wonder. I wonder if you would consider joining with me even this week. Is there someone in this church body not just in your family, although that's a great place to start, but just a brother or sister in the Lord that you're thankful to God for because you've seen evidence in the testimony of Christ's work in their life. One of the sweet blessings that I have and the elders have is when we do our member interviews. Oh man, church, every time I come away from those member interviews, I get to hear the testimonies of how God has brought people to faith, and I'm just always overwhelmed. I always think to myself, man, I wish everybody could have heard heard that. If you've been touched and blessed by somebody in the church, one, take the time this week to thank God for them. But take the time to pick up your phone and call them or to text them or just to send an email to say, I thank God for you. If somebody were to, to come up to you today, if I were to come to Jenny Villalobos and say, Jenny, I, I thank God for you and the way that you've served and loved in helping us with Vacation Bible School here at the church. Like I'm sure, Jenny, maybe your tank would be filled up a little bit by that, right? And then she wants to pass that on to, to someone else. And then they pass it on to somebody else. This is the body as we come together. Wouldn't it be so sweet? We would be known as the people when we see something, we say something, because we're following the pattern here that we see within the scriptures. And then Paul shows us it's not just about us giving thanks to God for one another and coming alongside one another and sharing these things with one another, but he comes in and he does something really interesting. The next thing that we really see him modeling is, is in the following verses. Look at, again, starting in verse 15. He comes in verse 15 and he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, but then he goes on, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. 
Paul moves from sharing with the believers in Ephesus how he gives thanks to God for them to sharing with the believers in Ephesus that he actually here makes requests of God on their behalf. He literally asks God of things for them. The very next thing that Paul models for us here, starting in verse 17, is that he models that it is good to pray for other believers, to actually make requests of God on their behalf. That's what's happening in verse 17. He says, not only do I thank God for you, but did you know I actually ask God to give you things? I make requests of God on your behalf? Now, it should somewhat surprise us that Paul would actually be asking God to do things for the believers in Ephesus. Do you know why it should surprise us? Well, because if you read the first part of the chapter, Paul went out of his way to share with the believers in Ephesus, do you know all the spiritual blessings that you have? Do you know what has come to you from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit? He's laid out all of these spiritual blessings that the Ephesian believers have currently. So like, what more could he ask of God to give them than what he's already given them? So, so that, it should kind of surprise us that he's telling them that I ask God to give you things when he's already told them all that they have. But in reality, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul would ask things of God because did you know that our Father in heaven invites us and wants us that when we pray to make requests of him? Our God is worthy of all praise. And there is not enough words we could say in a day to give him the glory and the exaltation that he deserves. Yet when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, you remember the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, give us this day our what? Daily bread. What's he doing there? Jesus is saying, make a request of God to meet and, and to provide for, for you. Later on, just the next chapter, in chapter 7, starting in verse 9, he tells that story that I alluded to last week where he invites us to ask God to give us certain things because he says, look, if you who are evil will give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things? So he says, don't hesitate to make requests of God. But church, what is it that Paul requests of God on behalf of other believers? Well, here we see four things that he asks, and these are four things that I believe it is right and it is good for us to also pursue and ask of God on behalf of those within this church. And the first one is, well, it's found here in verse 17. He says, here's what I pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Church, he doesn't pray and ask God to give them health and wealth. He doesn't pray for more spiritual blessings. He doesn't pray for sick family members. He doesn't pray for upcoming elections. Although all of those things we can pray for, 
in what's right and good to make any request known to God. But no, instead, out of all the things that he could ask of God, the thing that he desires for them, the, the requests that he makes of God, is a very simple and earnest request, and it is this. He prays that they would grow in knowing God more intimately. His prayer for them, do you see it right there in the text, is that they would grow in a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Church, because he prays for this, it lets us know something right off the bat. It lets us know that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when God the Father saves you and redeems you and draws you to himself, you are not a computer that all of a sudden a perfect and complete knowledge of God is downloaded into your brain. Instead, what Paul is showing us here is that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we continue to grow and we have a necessity to keep growing that not everything that is to be known about God is known to us instantaneously. In fact, Paul's already proven this point because he's had to take the time to tell them about spiritual blessings. But now he's coming and he's saying, like, I want you to know God more intimately. And what he's saying here is I don't want you just to simply have knowledge about God. This isn't about just learning theology so you have a head knowledge. Notice how specifically he prays that the eyes of their heart may be what? Enlightened. He doesn't talk about the eyes of the mind. He's talking about the heart it's, it's, it's that all-encompassing place where the desires and the emotions and the relational aspect of who you are reside. He says, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened up to God, not that you would know about him, but that you would know him. <laughs> and we know that we have room to grow because he prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation of God. The reason why he prays that we'd have more wisdom and revelation is because, guess what? We do not have all the wisdom. That is, we don't have a perfect understanding of the application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. It's the correct application of the knowledge that we've received, working that out. He says you don't have all the revelation, that the complete picture of God isn't known by us. And so Paul says, man, I, I so desperately want you to know him more. On an intimate level, to know your God. We can never stop growing in it. And the reason why he prays this is because these next three things that he asks of God, they really reveal what a full relationship with God and an understanding of it ultimately means for us and does for us. Look at what he prays next. He prays in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. After praying that for us to, to know God more intimately, he says, I want to pray that you would know the, the hope to which he's called you. If we're going to understand what he's asking God for, for us in this verse, you have to understand how the word hope is used in the Bible, because it's not used in the way that we use it today. Christmas is coming up. There's probably some child within the church who's saying, I really hope that I get a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. And, and a parent's like, yeah, I really hope that I get a Mercedes, but it ain't happening, all right, you know? Because what's the child saying? There's this thing I desire, but I do not yet possess, and I might or might not get it, so I, I hope that I get a PlayStation 5. Instead, the word hope in the Bible is not about a thing that might or might not come to pass. 
Instead, hope in the Bible is in reference to a guaranteed blessing or a guaranteed outcome that one has not yet maybe experienced in full. And so what Paul is saying is like, you have been called by God the Father. We saw that in the first verses. God God has put his call upon you and you have this, this hope, this guaranteed future, this guaranteed outcome that's gonna be a blessing to you. It's guaranteed, it's gonna come to pass and I'm praying that you would understand it. So what is it? What is that guaranteed blessing? It's interesting that when you go over just simply one chapter to chapter two, verse 12, Paul uses this word hope, and it gets us a little bit of an idea of what he's talking about here. In verses 11 and 12, Paul talks to the believers in Ephesus, and, and he says in verse 11 how they are Gentiles in the, in the faith, that, that, that they were not part of the promises of Israel. And then in verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What's Paul saying? There was a time where you were outside of relationship with God. And because you were outside of relationship with God, you had no hope. You had no guaranteed blessing. And so what is that guaranteed blessing? Well, listen, if you don't have God, that means all you have in your future, in my future, is the judgment and eternal wrath of God saved up against you. Condemnation is your future. That's not blessing, that is cursing. That is what you have to look forward to. But Paul says, you have been called to a hope, you've been called to a glorious future. And so what he's saying here is like, when I, when I pray for you, what I'm praying is that you would embrace and that you would know your glorious future that you have. Because you have God, because I have God, what we have to look forward to is a glorious future. We don't anticipate any longer God's judgment and his wrath, but church, You have an eternal home. You have a future. You have the redemption of your bodies. You have everlasting life. You have a glorious future. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he would write it this way. He would say this in in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 7. He says, so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul wants so desperately, God wants so desperately for us as his people to grow in our knowledge and understanding of our glorious future because if you truly understand that your future is guaranteed and it is glorious, it, it helps you, as Paul says, consider the realities of your present time and put them in the right context because sickness and disease Cancer destroys the body. Sin can impact present relationships. There is suffering in this world, but Paul says, as you walk in a world marked by sickness, pain, disease, and suffering, you have a glorious future. 
this slight and momentary affliction, it's all going to pass away one day. It's not your forever home. It's not your forever state. Instead, you get a home with God forever. This is such a silly illustration, but maybe it helps somebody here. Because every time I go to the beach at Oceanside Harbor, I think of this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. You know, when you go to the beach at Oceanside Harbor, there is like a mile of beach from the parking lot to the ocean. <laughs> Have you ever been there? It's not really a mile. It feels like it. And you come to the beach, and if your family's anything like mine, you bring all your stuff, all your chairs, and you unload it there at the curb, and then you look. I got to get from here to there. And the sand is hot. Do I wear sandals? Do I not wear my sandals? Are my feet going to burn? Is it going to get in my toes? And you're trying to decide what to do, and then you start making your way. And you're carrying your stuff, and when the kids were little, and, you, and we had to carry it pretty much all, I remember how my arms would just be like burning, and you're just walking as fast as you can in the sand just to get to the place where you want to sit down, because once you get there, you drop the stuff off, you open up the chairs, and then what? You're, oh, I'm at the beach. I can just enjoy this. And whenever I would go to the beach, and my arms would be burning as I'm carrying that stuff, I would just, this silly verse would come to me, this slight and momentary affliction. It's storing up for you. <laughs> You're going to get through it. Why? Because the beach doesn't go on forever. It's going to end. And when it ends, guess what I'm going to have? I'm going to have time to relax. And then and I'm going to enjoy the, the day at the beach. Sadly, you got to pick it all up and you have to go again, right? But that's not our situation. Our slight and momentary affliction, it only happens once, Paul says. But if you have your eyes to your glorious future... You're able to get through the day today. You're able to look at your suffering in the right perspective and say it stinks and it's grievous and it hurts, but I got a glorious home and you do too. It's why the hymn writer would write, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. It's kind of funny in light of the illustration, right? But we have this hope of a glorious future. And Paul says, I want you to know it. I want you to know it because Paul knows how much it will impact us on a day-to-day -day basis. But that's not the only thing that he prays. He goes on and he says this. I have something else that I pray for you. And I'm going to zoom through these last two. He says, look at this, verse 18. I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what comes next, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The next thing that he prays that we would know more is this thing that he calls the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Paul saying, you have an inheritance, and I want you to truly know it and understand it. Now, what is it? That's kind of the question. Well, often we try and guess at, like, what are those things that God gives us? I'm here to tell you that our glorious inheritance, the thing that is so glorious, those riches that we have received, is none other than God himself. There is no gift greater, there are no riches greater than actually having our God and being in relationship with him. We know this because Jesus gave a parable during his time here on earth. He spoke a parable and he said in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man found in the field. 
And when he went and he found the treasurer, he left, sold all of his possessions and bought the field. Why? Because he knew the treasure that he had. Paul says, do you know what it means for you to actually have God in your life? To know him and the riches that come from him. Because if you have God, you have an inheritance that literally supplies your every single need. Church, think about this. To have God is to have all the love you'll ever need. To have God is to have the love your heart so desperately needs. To have God is to have the security in this life that you so desperately need. As we saw last week, no one can snatch him from my hands. To have God is to have the grace that you so desperately need, to have the mercy you so desperately need. To have God is to have his love, his mercy, his grace, to have his peace. And so why does Paul want us to know all of this? Because if you know what you have in God, the love, the grace, the mercy, the peace, the joy, then you won't waste your life looking for that love, that peace, that joy, that security in the things of this world. In January of 2020, there was a, a woman by the name of Kathy Boone, and she, she passed away in Portland, Oregon, which is tragic in and of itself. She was only 49 when she passed away. She had been homeless and on the streets for years. But the truly tragic part of the story was that when she passed away, it was discovered that she had failed to claim a $900,000 inheritance that belonged to her. She had lived homeless and destitute on the streets without any means because she had never claimed the inheritance that was all already hers. For years, she lived homeless when what was available to her was already there. Paul is saying, I don't want you and I to live our lives unaware of what we have in God and all that he means. And so he's praying for us to understand our present blessings. I want you to know your present blessings, not just your glorious future, but the present blessings so that you and I wouldn't live as a homeless person when all of these riches are already there, that you wouldn't chase after the things of this world for your security, the love of others to fill you up when Paul says, don't you see you already have it? That famous rock band, U2, sang the song, and I'm not gonna sing it, but they sang the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. For us as Christians, we can never say that. Paul says, we can't say it because we have the glorious riches, but then he closes with this, and I don't have the time today to do this next section justice, but Paul's gonna come back to it again in chapter three, so I know I'm gonna get a second shot. But look at what he says. His final request for them is this. I'm praying that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, 
but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. What's the final thing that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus? He prays for others to embrace God's present power. He says, one of the things I wish that you would know more of and truly understand and truly grasp is the power of God that's not yours in the future, but is present with you here today. And he shows off for us in these beautiful verses the magnitude of God's power. He shows off just exactly how powerful, how sufficient God is. And, and he says, look at verse 19. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power. So how great is God's power? He literally says it is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. The hottest pepper that exists in the world today is the Carolina Reaper. There's another pepper called the Pepper X. And there, the, the, the spiciness or the, the hotness of those peppers is rated through the Scoville system. And so you got like a, a pepperoncini rates at like 500 or something like that on the Scoville uh, system. The Carolina Reaper, it measures at 2.2 million Scoville, okay? God's like, you wanna know what your power's like? Like, like you're down here. God, he's off the charts. <laughs> His power is beyond what you can even imagine. He says, but just to give you a taste of how powerful it is, he says, God has shown you how great his power is. The power that's actually at work within you today if you look to him. And he shows us first and foremost that God's power overcame death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You wanna know how powerful God is? He, he references here how God showed his power, put it on display when he raised Christ from the dead. Two of the most powerful forces in the world are death and evil. And in this passage, Paul says, God's power overcame both of them. It raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It says it right here in verse 19. The thing for which you and I could never overcome is death. And yet, Paul would write to the Corinthians, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I overcame it through my son's death on the cross. His body did not see decay because death had no power over him. I conquered death. But not only did I conquer death, look at how the passage goes on to say, I exalted him. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the throne. And today he rules and he reigns. God's power not only conquered death, God's power conquered evil. Because there's not one authority in heaven, on earth, or under the earth for which Christ does not reign over. The reign of Jesus Christ today is true and it is real because Christ reigns over all and because he reigns over all, evil has been conquered. That's what Paul is saying here. And so the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that today Jesus Christ exerts in his reign over all things, that power is yours and that is mine. And Paul says, I want you to know it. Sin in your life, we can't excuse it. We, we can't say that it's something that's, that's too powerful of a force over us because Christ has been raised from the dead. We can't say that my sins could never be forgiven because Christ's death conquered your sin. 
This gives us immeasurable hope in the present because today Jesus is on his throne. He's reigning and he's ruling. What does Paul model for us today? He models for us in this prayer. He says, it is right, it's good for you to give thanks to God for others. (coughs) But not only is it right and good to give thanks to God for others, it's right and it's good that we would pray for one another. And here's where I'd invite you to do something with me. You don't have to do it, but think about what it would be. You know, the first hour, because everybody, you know, had enough sleep. It was packed in here, right? Hardly, hardly a seat. And I looked at that first hour, and I thought, man, what if we all joined together and intentionally from now until the end of this year prayed at least once a week, thanking God for the people in this church? And what if we together as a body prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts to know him individually better, that we would know our glorious future so that it impacts us in the present, that we would know the riches that we have in him, the security, the love that we have in him. And and what if we prayed that along with all those things, we would truly live in the power that is at work within us? How transformative might that be? Well, Paul says, you can't even imagine how transformative that would be. But what if we were to do it? What if we were to engage in it? God's word says it's right and it's good and it would all be for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, rather than just talking about it, rather than just letting your word reveal it to us, Lord, we want to walk in it right now. And so I want to say thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here in this church. Lord, I pray it in private. We pray it as a staff. But Lord, I pray it out loud right here, right now. Lord, I thank you for this body. I thank you for the evidence of faith for, Lord, my brothers and sisters, their their genuine trust in you, the profession of faith to a watching world. And then, Lord, the love that they have for one another and that they walk in. Lord, none of us is perfect and And Father, I know that to be true in my own life, but Lord, I am grateful to you that you've allowed me to minister to a people like this, Lord, where there's been such unity, Lord, where there has been, Lord, just such evidence of your hand at work. And Father, we don't take those things for granted, and so I pray, I pray for all of us, Lord, would you help us to know you more intimately, that we really, really would not just be ever contented with our knowledge and our experience of you today, but Lord, we would drive and strive to know you more. And that, Father, you would open our eyes to see day by day, Lord, how this world is, is not all that there will be for us, but there's a glorious future with you that we would see day by day, Lord, the riches that we have in you rather than pursuing, Lord, what moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And then, Lord, help us to walk and to know the power that raised Christ from the dead, that seats Christ in the heavenlies, that puts him as head over the church, Lord, that that power is at work in us on a day-to-day basis. Lord, we ask these things because, Lord, you invite us to. And we pray these things through the one who makes it all possible, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen.